Good say good morning. It's great to have everybody here. Welcome to family and friends, and welcome to those of you who are new. It's great to see you guys. My name is Matthew Rojak. I'm an elder here, and uh, again, just wanted to say welcome. We're in the middle of Advent season, and as Pastor Leon uh, spoke earlier, one thing I did want to mention is at Mac, we usually go through books of the Bible. Man, we start at verse 1-1, and we go to the end, verse by verse, uh, talking about the scriptures. We've taken a little bit of break in time uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, just to give us the hope of the gospel, but we're in the middle of a competition right now. The world is competing for our attention uh, to change something, to change Christmas from something that it's not, uh, basically greed, uh, to something that it is. And that's about worshiping a Savior and the hope that we have. We were in darkness and light has come into the world. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope we have. So I just want to encourage you guys um, uh, that that Christ Jesus is the hope for this season. Um, one thing we do, if you guys want to ask questions, might be a little bit odd for an Advent topic, but please, if, if I misspeak or if there's something that needs clarity, go ahead, raise your hand. I'll probably finish my point, uh, but I'd be happy to kind of talk it through. I am going to be quoting in this first section uh, an author and apologist, a guy named Craig Beal. I just wanted to make that real clear. I took some stuff right off of his website that I thought was very appropriate for the conversation of hope. So if you guys would open up with me in prayer. Thank you. Father, in Jesus' name we come before you. And Lord, we know that apart from the Holy Spirit, we did not get drawn. Apart from Christ's work on the cross, we would have not been drawn to your Son by you, by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you bring light, you bring illumination, you bring discernment, you bring understanding, you break the hearts of men and reestablish them, Father God, towards your Son. So Lord, do that now. The areas of our life that are in darkness, Lord God, would you bring them to light that they might not only be exposed to the cross, but to ourselves, that we might repent of them. Lord, give us, give us hopeful hearts, Father God, for the gospel. Lord, speak clearly through your word, speak clearly through me, and Lord, give the congregation ears to hear, eyes to see who you are and what you desire for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, our topic this week is hope. Last week, uh, Elder Alvin brought a great word on peace. I encourage you guys, if you didn't have opportunity to listen to that, please do so. I told him he stole a whole lot of my scriptures, but that's okay. They're good to be repetitive anyways. So I would say that the, the, the uh, title for day, today's sermon would be, What is the object of your hope? What's the object of your hope? And Uh, Craig Beale says something I just thought was very critical. There's two words in the English language that if we put them together, man, they bring discouragement, they bring destruction, they bring despair, and they can even bring death. And that's no hope. Whether you're in a doctor's office whether you're in the middle of a counseling session, marriage counseling session with your spouse that you guys are working through some trouble, whether it's you've got a broken relationship and you're out to lunch with someone trying to reconcile that relationship, what happens if you heard the words no hope put together? Man, that's final. Proverbs 14 tells us, the spirit of a man can endure his sickness, 
but a broken spirit, who can endure? Because it's so final. A broken spirit is a spirit that is without hope. So let's get some definitions of what hope is. There's basically two definitions. The first definition is about hope is that it's wishful thinking. I wish I had a job, wish I had a better job, wish I could find somebody to date. The problem with that is that there is no promise and there's no power. The Christian hope is vastly different. And sometimes using the word hope is almost confusing because we associate it with wishful thinking when it's not. The Christian's hope is an assurance concerning the future. However uncertain our circumstances or however God may or will answer our prayers, we can be completely confident that Romans 8.28 is true. That he will work all things for our good and for his glory. You can rest assured on that. You can be completely confident in that. It's not even a hope, really. It's just, man, that, that's what it is. As believers, we live in the um, uncertainty type hope, and we live in the certainty hope. The uncertainty of we pray for deliverance, and we ask the Father, Lord, will you deliver me from this addiction? Will you deliver me from sorrow? Will you deliver me from myself that makes poor choices? But we have the certainty that in eternity, all things will be made right and all things will be made new. And man, that, that is something to hold on to. And I would encourage you guys to do that. Hope depends on an object. And I would even say hopelessness depends on an object. And let me give you an analogy. Say you're not feeling well. You go to the doctor. They run some tests. Doctor calls you back up, make an appointment to go see the doctor, and you walk in his office. He says, man, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. So being a good Mac hacker, you say, give me the bad news. And he says, you have cancer. And what happens? You have an object of hopelessness. And immediately your mind begins to race. Why me? How much is it going to hurt? Will chemo heal it? Will my insurance cover it? Do I have insurance? What about the life that I've had planned? What about my spouse? What about my children? And all of these thoughts begin rushing. And man, you're going downhill fast. And all of a sudden the doc looks at you and he shakes you and he says, hey, I told you I got good news. You know, yeah, yeah, what's what's the good news? He said, see this green pill? 10,000 people have gone through this hospital with the exact cancer you have. And they've taken this pill, and every single one of them, without exception, has been healed. And it's 30 bucks. So, so what just happened? The object of hopelessness was trumped by the object of hope. Cancer versus a green pill. And all of a sudden, you went from despair to, cool, 30 bucks, let's do it, right? Hope can be false when we look to someone or something that cannot fulfill it. 
Psalms 33, 17 says, A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Now, I, I want to clarify the point there. We know that in olden times, horses were part of the victory. I mean, if you had horses, the other guys didn't, yeah, that's a big deal. But what the psalmist is saying here is behind that horse's strength, behind the actual victory, it is won by God, not the horse. So underlying the, the uncertainty hope of the horse is the certainty hope of Yahweh. Hope can also be uncertain when it stands on something or someone that may not or may not be willing to fulfill it. Hope is sure when it rests in something or on someone that's absolutely willing and able to fulfill it. 1 Timothy 1 at the end of that scripture says, And of Christ Jesus who is our hope. Our hope can be assured because we know the nature of the Father. We know his nature so we can be assured in that. He's all-powerful, he's all-merciful, and all-knowing in wisdom towards us. And this is where the power and the present, I'm sorry, the power and the promise come. We have the promise of the cross, of redemption, of hope, that A, we don't have to live in darkness anymore, and two, we can be assured of eternity, even though our circumstances might not even change. And that's a bitter pill to swallow because that's not the gospel that's always preached. Sometimes the gospel that's preached is God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now. And we know that that's just not true. But we know that in eternity, man, we're going to be dancing. Luke seven seventeen through 21 is a follow-up of the scripture of reports of Jesus raising the widow's son. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding of the country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one, or shall we look for another? In just that hour... Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues, evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So I want to pause here, take a moment to look at John and his history to give a background for the main discussion today. If anyone had reason to hope, I mean, if there's five people in the, in the Bible that had reason to hope, it was John. His resume of hope, per se, included the following. Think about his birth. Real briefly, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, were old. Zechariah is a high priest. He goes in to offer a sacrifice. What happens? The angel appears and says, man, you guys are going to be pregnant. You're going to have a baby. Zechariah becomes uh, deaf and mute because of his unbelief. And then look at the next thing. What happens with his wife, Elizabeth? She goes and she says hi to Mary, her cousin, and as she's approaching and says hi to Mary, John, inside the womb of Elizabeth, hears Mary's voice and leaps within his mom. And then his mom, Elizabeth, prophesies. And then you have Mary herself 
and the miracle birth and the prophecy that the baby that Mary is carrying is going to save Israel from their sins. And then Alvin brought up last week, Simeon. Simeon's this old guy at the temple who God had promised him that he was not going to see death until he saw the Savior. And he sees the Savior and he calls it out in the middle of the temple. Can you imagine the people flocking around him? The hope of Israel had walked into that temple. And then Anna. Anna was a, a, a widower as well who was in the temple day and night. And she comes up and prophesies to Jesus. And then think of John when John starts his earthly ministry. I mean, now, you got to remember, he knew who Jesus was for sure. I mean, they're cousins. He knew what was going on. And all of a sudden, John's baptizing at the River Jordan. Jesus comes walking, and the Father speaks to John. says, this is the guy that you've been foretelling. This is the guy who's going to save Israel from his sins. Then what happens? Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. John baptizes him. And then an audible voice from heaven comes and says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So I was born under kind of weird circumstances. First of all, there was a genetic makeup that there was a real strong possibility that I was going to be born with a severe handicap. And then the actual day that my mom went into labor with me, I've got three older siblings. So my mom has given my sister, who's about six years old, a permanent. And we've got chemicals in her hair. She's given her a permanent in the sink. My oldest brother, who's about seven then, walks in the door and says, I think I just killed Paul, who was my other brother. They're behind the garage. They're digging a hole. My brother Mark is in the hole. Throws a shovel, hits Paul in the head, knocked out cold. Paul's bleeding. My mom goes into labor. My sister ended up with close to an afro. So, what's my point? My point is, <laughs> how does that tell you? So, my point is, do you guys know how many times I heard that story? Every birthday. Oh, I remember when I was pregnant with you. Do you know how many times I've retold that story? That story is permanently ingrained as an episode of my life. Don't you think that John would have heard the story of his father being visited by an angel, his miraculous birth, him jumping in Elizabeth's womb when he hears the voice of the mother of Jesus? And think about, you know, we don't know much from birth to his ministry, but what about when Jesus got left behind at the temple? What did he say? That was his first declaration that he was the son of God. Think about it. What did he say? I was at my father's house. His parents asked him, where were you? I was at my father's house. Don't you think that all of those stories came back to John time and time and time again? So what happened that John would send his disciples, after knowing all of these things, regurgitating them in his mind for 30 years? What happened? What happened is that regardless of our spiritual pedigree, we can all succumb to fear or worry 
or some other emotion that doesn't care about logic. Emotions don't care about logic. In the back of John's mind, he's in prison. I got to imagine that he's thinking through some of these things. But they were of little value to him until the object of his hope spoke words of life to him. Another thing that can happen is look at the circumstances. Circumstances generally lie because there's a greater object of our hope that trumps all circumstances. Even if the circumstances don't change, it's still trumped because we have the hope and the surety of eternity. We live in the present and the future is unsure. Will it change? If so, is it going to change for the better? Is it going to change for the worse? While in present pain, seeing or believing in a hopeful future is not as easy as a snap of our fingers or just trying harder with positive thinking or even quoting some, some of the happy verses of Scripture. So I want to make sure you guys understand I'm not taking anything away from anybody's sorrow or their grief. Matthew 12, 17 through 20 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And hear, hear, hear this, saints. A bruised A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering rick he will not quench. A bruised reed is like a piece of straw grass, like a piece uh, of straw, thin-walled, that grew by the marshes. And the point that Jesus is making here, that the Father is making about his Son is when you take something as insignificant as a piece of straw that's almost worthless and it gets bruised. If you guys have ever seen like a flower stem and you nick it. We brought some flowers home from Eastern Market yesterday and one of them was nicked. And the flower was bent over. What's the first thing we do? Snip. Gone. Because it's worthless. It's lost its beauty. Or if you look at what a smoldering wick is, it's a ceramic lamp filled with oil. There was a wick in it. What's the purpose? What's the sole purpose of a lamp? It does one thing. So if it doesn't do that, why bother? If the wick's not acting properly, you throw it away. So think of those analogies. Think of the mercy of the Father that he's not going to even throw away a worthless little piece of reed that's gotten bent or a wick that is not doing what it's supposed to do. You know, a couple of weeks ago we had Confession, Prayer, and Praise Sunday. And I don't know that I've ever been as moved by that time of confession as I have ever been in the past. And I've asked their permission if I could use them. But when Krista stood up and said what she said, how the very thing that God had provided as a gift and as of life to her 
was eating at her very soul and, and the sorrow that she felt in that. And then you got Demetrius and Rhea getting up. Man. I mean, Rhea has got a baby on the way, three at home, already fairly overwhelmed. And then she's got a nephew who's in some serious turmoil. And man, she doesn't know what to do. Because the turmoil that he's in, if she draws him in, it's going to affect her family. And she said, man, I, I can't draw. I want to draw. I can't. What do I do? Family members saying, bruised reed, throw him away. Smoldering wick, flick it out of here. We want nothing to do with that. And yet Rhea's in her mind saying, man, this is my, my nephew. And I'm assuming also in the back of her mind saying, another young black male that's going to be discarded. She's torn. Demetrius gets up and he says, man, I'm beat. I've been shouldering this thing for 30 plus years. I don't know if you guys know, they used to live in Detroit. They escaped. They both have degrees. They're all, man, we're out of here. We're going to the land of milk and honey. And then what happened? Wow, the calling of Mac, calling of Eric and Leon and what Mac offers. Yeah, guess what? They sold their home. They moved back. They moved back to sorrow and disappointment and bruised reeds all around us, smoldering ricks all around us. I know that there's some of you here. You're single. You go home at night and it's dark. You eat by yourself. Everybody else is out playing, having party games with their spouse and your home. You're a bruised reed wanting the nurturing of the Lord. There's some of you who are married. You've got the joy of marriage, and yet you say, what the heck did I get myself into? Are they the most selfish person I've ever met in my life? When are they ever going to wake up and recognize, man, this thing's a partnership. There are those of you who feel despondent about work. Will I ever make enough to support my family? When will I get a raise? When will my boss quit yelling at me? Can I ever retire? Can I get health care benefits? I wish the health care benefits were better. And then you got the flip side. You got people with masters, PhDs. You get, look at Josh Eby. 80 hours a week. He's got a pregnant wife at home. You don't think he falls into similar despair? Man, Lord, am I going to be able to pay these loans back? Why does my boss, who's supposed to assist me and help me grow into a virtuous doctor, scold me every time I turn around? When does he sleep? When does he see his wife? When does he hang with the foster kids they have? When does he do Mac group? Guaranteed, there's some hopelessness there. I'm sure that there are times he feels like, man, my wick is smoldering. There are those of you who have broken relationships that seem irresolvable. Family members who are against you, against what you guys have done, chosen to live in an unsafe environment. You have parents, 
Most of you guys are young. You got parents who still want to tell you what to do because they don't think that you're mature enough or smart enough. They're not ready to release the strings. Feel like a bruised reed. I want to look at some other examples from the scripture, and I would really plead with you guys start right now, this moment, with a fresh set of eyes and a fresh set of ears to listen to who we're going to talk about. In John 4, you've got the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's hard to even discuss what her um, social background brought to the table. I mean, that'd take a sermon. But let me ask you a question. Five husbands and you're on the sixth? Are you kidding me? Didn't you learn after number two, number three, four, five? But did Christ break that bruised reed? No, what did he do? He gave her living water. John 8. Now this one, man. Caught in the very act of adultery. I want to be careful because we have kids, but put in your mind what that looks like. In the act, and now you're in the crowd. Imagine dragging somebody in the middle of the eastern market on a Saturday morning. Clothes probably pretty disheveled. I'm sure the makeup was very apparent at who she was. Can you imagine the humiliation? A bruised reed and a smoldering wick. What did he say to her? Where's your accusers? He says, man, I don't accuse you either. Now he does bring in tooth and say, man, go and sin no more. But that would have been easy for him to say, hey, the law says stoner, have at it. Bruised reed will he not break a smoldering wick will he not quench. You know, what I was thinking about is in John 9, the blind beggar. Now think about this. He starts out in a plate of miserableness. He's a blind beggar. I mean, talk about hopeless. Then what happens? He goes, what do they call it, from the boiling pot into the fire? Jesus heals him. His parents won't even stick up for him. Yeah, go ahead and ask him. Uh, we, don't, we don't want any trouble with the Pharisee cops. Go ask him who healed him. And then he's talking to the Pharisees, the very people who should be rejoicing in that the hope of Israel is there, and they scold him. They say, hey, you don't even have a seventh grade education. You don't have an MBA in theology. Don't be trying to talk to us telling us what we know that you don't. So he goes from being a blind beggar to his parents dumping him, and to the Pharisees, the very people who ought to be high-fiving him and rejoicing with him. And then, man, who's the biggest bruised reed we could possibly name? I think there's only one. Peter. Hey, Lord, the other 11, they bail on you. Not me. Not me. And yet Christ does not break him. He did not throw him away. And look what Peter ends up being. Man, like a prophetic rock where thousands upon thousands upon thousands hear the gospel and have opportunity. 
Remember the passage uh, in Thessalonians Pastor Eric preached on about being thankful not for, but in all circumstances and situations. And I want to encourage you, wherever you are at, whatever your lot in life is, whether you're working 80 hours a week, you know, Roderick's running around the world, literally. And think about that. I'll guarantee you there's times Roderick's coming back on a plane on the midnight cruise and wants to see his son, and he's a bit hopeless. But in the back of his mind, Roderick's got the object of his hope as Christ. The above situation speaks to incredible hopelessness. Is yours in the same vein of seriousness? Do you feel bruised, broken by your circumstances, by lost relationships, longings that are unfulfilled, seemingly unchangeable, seemingly, seemingly unchangeable roads ahead? You know, again, if I can, use Alicia. I'm sure when the doctor said, hey, there's a little bit of a problem here, man, she had to renew her mind to the object of her hope. And then she gets the word, cancer-free, rejoice. Hallelujah. I do want to say, remember what the Christian hope is. It's an assurance that even, and hear me, hear me, saints, even if the external circumstances of your life do not change, the internal and the eternal are offered to you in the object of our hope, Jesus Christ. I want to say that again. Even if our circumstances, our external circumstances don't change, the internal, our character, our sanctification, our faith, our holiness, our confidence, and the eternal consequences and circumstances are guaranteed by Christ Jesus himself, by his paid-for ransom of you. Luke 17, 22 through 28, and he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Now this is an answer to John's question. Are you the one or do we look for someone else? Jesus says, go and tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind receives their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Can you imagine with me, as John heard these words, that the Holy Spirit spoke to John and said, hey, remember Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. We were all captives to sin. We're all captives to our little pensions for doing things, to disobediences. He brought liberty to you and I because of the cross and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I mean, before us in the 48214, I think it's seemingly more visually apparent as we go by the blue light 
And there's, what, 30 or 40 people out there, all with a can of beer in their hands, sitting, guys in wheelchairs. They're in prison. They're captive. They need the good news preached to them. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. No longer a bruised reed, but an oak of righteousness. Put that in your mind and compare that visually. The planning of the Lord that he, Christ Jesus, may be glorified, that they shall build up the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The devastation of many generations. Think about Detroit. Think of the generational jazz that's going on here. Jesus came to heal that and to take away that devastation. And when you think about it, Jesus really didn't even answer John's question. He answered it as he has so many other times with a different declaration or even a question. And he says, Jesus answered, who do my words speak of? And as he had those different things that Jesus accomplished, he was telling John, who do these things speak of? The Father the Father Yahweh that John knew. I can easily imagine as well that the Holy Spirit whispered to John when after he heard these words, remember your calling, your birth? It was not from man, but it was from heaven itself. Remember me telling you at the River Jordan? It's him. This is the guy that you've been telling others about. Remember all the miracles that you saw firsthand? Remember when you were baptizing and you heard the miracles from afar of what Jesus was doing? From common people? Remember Nicodemus? There were some Pharisees and scribes who Jesus got to. And I can just imagine John leaning back in his prison cell and saying, It is well with my soul. And then we look at the last line of that verse. It says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I mean, think about that. If you're a believer, you're greater than John the Baptist. And there was none greater that Jesus just declared. So let me ask you, saints, Was your life that was once straight a monument to Jesus? Has it bent somehow? Has someone broken it? Has your spouse trampled it? Or your ex-spouse trampled it? Has someone turned out or tried to extinguish your lamp? He will not break a bruised reed. Look at Peter. 
Look at Peter. Man, I can almost guarantee you none of us have ever stooped that low. And forgive me for saying it that way, but think of Peter. If, if Jesus was going to get rid of somebody, it would have been Peter. If Jesus, and I say if, for those of you here who might not know him, if he was the Son of God, and God willingly, no, determinedly sacrificed his own Son, can we not, with a wink of confidence, trust him to set our reed that was bruised straight? Can we not trust him that he is going to refuel us? And the one thing that we do, bringing light to darkness and glory to God, if your wick is being smooshed out, he's going to refuel it. He's going to give you the strength of a new wick. We trust him for such big things as eternal salvation. Could he not fly manna in from Belle Isle? Could he not mend the broken hearts? the broken spirits, heal wounded relationships. As believers, I want to say, do not give up hope. The object of our hope is nothing less than the Son of God himself. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? You know, there was a couple other scriptures I just wanted to briefly mention to you guys that in my mind just echo what we've been talking about. The point is, what's the object of your hope? Remember, cancer, green pill, Hopelessness, Christ. Two other scriptures that I was thinking about. In Hebrews 12.2, I think it says, there's two different things. One says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Another says, looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who the joy that was set before him endured the cross and the suffering and the shame that came with the cross. And if you go on... Um, it just talks about, man, if you're, if you're hopeless, if you're in despair, we have not only an advocate pleading our case before the Father, Jesus, but we also have someone who's walked in our shoes with the temptation of sin and was sinless. And then, like, man, the culmination of that thing is that when he left, he sent you and I the Holy Spirit. And remember we talked earlier about how a horse does not gain the victory, and how the uncertainty of like wishful thinking does not carry with it the promise or the power. Here's where the promise and power come in. We have the promise of eternity, and we have the power not only of a resurrected Savior, but of the Holy Spirit that he left to encourage us in our minds, to renew our minds, to bring discernment as we're reading through the scriptures, to bring the hope of the gospel to bear in our lives.
So I, I do want to just encourage you guys, if there's anybody here who doesn't know what we're talking about, maybe you've heard about who Jesus is, maybe you've heard the gospel, maybe you think you're a believer but you're not 100% sure, man, you're in a room with like people. We are all bruised reeds. We are all smoldering wicks. We've been redeemed because God has been gracious to us and turned our dark hearts into heights that, hearts that say, wow, that's who he is? Praise the Lord, that's what I'd like. So I want to encourage you, man, if you feel like a bruised reed, if you feel hopeless, whether I brought up your circumstance or not, if it's a different circumstance, we have hope in Christ Jesus. God, who freely gave of his only son as a sacrifice, the scripture says, will he not by him and through him and with him graciously give us all things. So we're going to take communion and we're going to have uh, an offering. But I guess, let me, let, me, let me back up. To the end of what I said, there's going to be some elders up here afterwards. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, man, and you want somebody to pray for you, please come up. We would just consider it a joy to be able to pray with you and to share that sorrow. Second Corinthians, I think it's the first chapter, the second chapter says that the things that you and I suffer, they do two things. One of them is develop character in us, but Corinthians says, so that we could comfort those who are in like affliction with the comfort that we've received. You know, Tammy, I hope you don't mind, but Tammy has suffered through addiction. You're in addiction? Go talk to Tammy. She'll tell you the hope that she has. She will tell you the power that she's found. She will share with you in your affliction as God himself, as Teen Challenge, joined her in that affliction and brought hope. Anyways, again, we're going to have offering. I'd encourage you, if you're part of the body of Christ here at Mac, give generously and freely to the Lord.